Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. It's great to be here with you all. Before we continue any further, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school classrooms. As the kids make their way uh, to their class, will the rest of you please open up your Bibles and make your way to Luke chapter 9, okay? Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, feel free to borrow one of the ones we have uh, stationed under many of the chairs throughout the sanctuary. Uh, I do believe that it's very important that we follow along in the Word, that we read for ourselves uh, what it has to say. I, I do want to encourage you all to be uh, good Bereans, okay? And that, that's uh, some Christianese there for you. I'll, I'll explain, okay? Um, you know, Paul commended those in the city of Berea when he passed through their area, and he tells us they were more fair-minded, they were men of high character, okay, and that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Paul commended them for not just taking his word about the gospel, but for receiving it and then actually checking it to see if it lined up with the rest of scripture. And I want to encourage you all to do the same, okay? Read the scriptures, Receive what I have to say, but, but study it for yourselves as well. And, and part of that's just reading through and following along yourself. So hopefully you understand why we make that uh, into a big deal. Well, this morning we're going to pick up where we last left off on our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you were with us last week, you'll recall how we looked at a very familiar portion of Scripture that detailed for us the events surrounding Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000. In our study, we highlighted how Jesus wanted to get away with his disciples to a deserted place in Bethsaida to hear all the wonderful things that the disciples were able to do and accomplish after being sent out two by two. But the multitudes, they were persistent and they ran ahead of Jesus and his disciples. They were waiting for them once they arrived in Bethsaida. Jesus moved with compassion decided he was going to minister not only to their spiritual needs, but also their physical needs. And he fed the multitudes with five loaves and two small fish, something that was so small, so insignificant in the disciples' eyes, was used by the Lord to do the miraculous. Today's account is actually going to detail for us some events that took place a few months down the road. Now, from Luke's perspective, as, as we kind of read through chapter 9, okay, uh, it would seem that verse 17 to 18 could have been something that immediately followed the feeding of the 5,000. You just kind of read it on. But when we compare the other gospel accounts, we come to find out that there's actually a gap about five to six months uh, between the events of verse 17 and the feeding of the 5,000 to what we're going to be looking at in our portion of Scripture today, beginning in verse 18. Uh, something we only discover from reading the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and, and John, the other gospel writers. In fact, from here on out, we're going to see a concerted shift in focus from Jesus and his earthly ministry. Jesus, at this time in our reading, is about six months away from his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his ultimate sacrifice. And so from here on out, Jesus focuses upon preparing his disciples for what lies ahead, not only for himself, but also for them. The title of our study this morning is Following 
the Christ, okay? And our text is going to be Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word? I'm going to read through our text in its entirety from my Bible, the New King James Version is what I'm reading from. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along. Luke writes the following in verse 18 of chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke. And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. We'll stop right there. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together as brothers and sisters in you, Lord, to hear from you, our Abba Father. And Lord, I pray that as we've opened up your word, Lord, that we will be open to all that your spirit desires to say to us this morning, that we would be yielded to your word and that we would allow your word to do that work in us that you've promised to complete. Lord, to mold us and to shape us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we yield ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to your word. Do a work in us. And, Lord, be glorified in all that we say and do. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In our text today, we have some very important questions that are answered for us. Questions that are a matter of life and death, questions that are of eternal consequence. The first question that we're going to deal with has to do with the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? And this will be covered in verses 18 through 20. The second question that we're going to tackle takes on the question of who is the Christ and what is his mission? This will be seen in verses 21 and 22. And then the third and final question we'll look to find an answer to is, what is a follower of Christ? And this will be covered in the rest of our text in verses 23 through 27. Now, I have to be honest and upfront with you guys, okay? Uh, When I started this study, I envisioned being able to tackle all of this in one study. Uh, But yesterday, as I was typing the message up, and I was at the top of my 
17th page, I knew there was just no way that we were going to be able to do this all in one sitting. And so we're going to take, co- uh, we're going to cover this study over the next two weeks, okay? Uh, so today's part one of our study. And in part one, I hope to cover the first two questions regarding who is Jesus and what is the mission of the Christ, okay? And we'll cover the third and final section, Lord willing, in part two next week. So you're only going to get part of it. Make sure you come back next week, okay? <laughs> All right. With that, let's go ahead and take a look at our opening verses as we jump into the first question dealing with the identity of Jesus. Verses 18 and 19, Luke writes, And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he, he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. In our opening verse, verse 18, Jesus asked the disciples a question about what others are saying about him. The disciples had been walking with the Lord for some time now, about two and a half years, and they no doubt had heard a number of opinions concerning the identity of Jesus. Many people were talking and speculation about him was growing. Some seemed certain of who he was, while others still had their doubts. Remember that just a couple weeks ago, we read about Herod and what he had heard about Jesus. He had heard some of what the people were saying, and he was convinced Jesus was John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Jesus knew what Herod had heard, but here Jesus asked his disciples about what they had heard. What was the word on the street from the disciples' perspective? Okay, I find it interesting that Jesus would ask this. After all, he is God. He knows what others think about him. He tells us that as we read uh, throughout the gospel, we hear, and he knew their thoughts, right? So uh, this wasn't something Jesus didn't know. He knows what others think about him. He knows what others are saying about him. And yet he still asked the disciples if they know what the people are saying about him. And I believe there's a lesson for the disciples and even for us here, as we'll see in a little bit. Well, in verse 19, Jesus' disciples responded with a few of the more prominent suggestions that were out there. And they started with saying that some say John the Baptist. Okay, as I mentioned already, this was very prominent, a very prominent view. It was one that was shared by Herod Antipas. Herod was uh, paranoid over what he had done to John the Baptist in ordering his beheading at the request of his stepdaughter. And he was certain that John the Baptist had come back from the dead to torment him. Now, the connection between John the Baptist and Jesus is interesting to consider, seeing as how their ministry styles were so very different. This difference is noted in Jesus' own words found in Matthew when he states how John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon, and the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so what would make the people think that they were the same person if their ministry styles were so different? I believe the major connection between the two that could have made people think this way was the uniformity of their message. Both John the Baptist and Jesus preached a message of 
repentance. Earlier in our study of the book of Luke, Luke noted how John went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance okay, for the remission of sins. When the religious elite complained about Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors, Jesus proclaimed, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so we see that the message of John the Baptist and Jesus, it was the same. They both preached a message of repentance. And so some people looked at that and they say, oh, they must be, this must be John the Baptist. He's saying the same thing. Others said that Jesus was Elijah. One thing that was very evident and many benefited from in regard to Jesus' earthly ministry was his ability to perform the miraculous. Perhaps this is why people suggested that Jesus could be Elijah, because Elijah was a prophet that was able to perform a number of miracles. You can actually read about the miraculous ministry of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, also in 2 Kings chapter 1 and 2. Elijah was able to uh, command the weather. Uh, We know that he prevented the rain from coming for over three years. Uh, And then as he started to pray, he was able to uh, call upon the Lord to bring rain. He called fire down from heaven to consume the altar on Mount Carmel, in addition to calling down fire upon a couple groups of soldiers. He miraculously fed a widow and her son from a seemingly never-ending supply of flour and oil and later raised the widow's son back to life. And and we can actually look and see similar aspects uh, of Christ in his own ministry, right? He too was able to control the weather. Uh, We read about how he's, uh, you know, rebuked the winds and, and the waves. He didn't call down fire from heaven, but the Spirit descended upon him from heaven, and the voice of the Lord came down from heaven when the Lord declared, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Jesus not only fed a widow and her son, but multitudes of people, as we just read about last week in the feeding of the 5,000, with just five loaves and two small fish. And he too was able to raise from the dead, as we've already read and studied about how he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And, and so we can understand how some could compare Jesus to Elijah based upon their similar miracle working power, also understanding that many people were on the lookout for an Elijah to come. And so, you know, we can understand and we can make sense how people might come to that conclusion. Oh, this is, this is Elijah. Matthew's parallel account of this event tells us that some thought Jesus was Jeremiah, uh, the Old Testament prophet. Matthew chapter 16, verse 14. What do we know about Jeremiah, the prophet? Well, we know that Jeremiah, the prophet, was uh, an emotional man. He was uh, known as the weeping prophet. For on a number of occasions, he wept for the people to turn from their ways, to come back to God. Jesus, too, is seen weeping on a couple different occasions in his earthly ministry. Both Jeremiah and Jesus were men marked by their compassion for the people that they served. The love they displayed towards the people they ministered to set them apart from others. And so some came to the conclusion that Jesus was Jeremiah the prophet. 
The disciples also stated how some said that Jesus was perhaps one of the old prophets that had risen again. Uh, pick your, you know, pick whichever prophet you'd like. <laughs> I think it's easy to understand why some may view Jesus as one of the uh, Old Testament prophets for much of what he was doing was foretold by many of the prophets from the Old Testament. He was fulfilling prophecies of Isaiah and Micah and Zechariah. Daniel and Hosea all spoke about the coming Messiah. It would be understandable to connect Jesus with any of the Old Testament prophets that prophesied about his coming. And really, there was little doubt by most, even amongst the religious elite, that Jesus was sent by God, just as all the other prophets had been sent by God. We know this because Nicodemus, the Pharisee, he admitted to that when he came to him during the middle of the night in John chapter 3, stating, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so people had all these different thoughts. He's, he's from God. He's a teacher. You know, the question of what others say about Jesus is a question that has been asked for the last 2,000 years. And it is still a question that has caused much speculation and a lot of varying opinions even to this day. We've noted this before, but I'll note it again. You know, the Mormons, they say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer the devil. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses, they say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. The Muslims believe, like many of the others referred to in our text here, that Jesus was just a prophet, but he's not the Son of God. The Hindus acknowledge Jesus to be a holy man and believe him to be an avatar of God, one of hundreds. There are those out there that actually say that Jesus never really existed, okay? that he was just made up to get people to follow along in some sort of hoax. Another popular view of the identity of Jesus is simply a name that people use for a God of their own making. They say he's the same Jesus you and I worship, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's an idol created by man that's okay with sin and doesn't demand anything. No discipline, no sacrifice, no surrendering, no submitting. It is an idol that people believe will get them into heaven simply because they call their idol Jesus. And there are still others who claim that Jesus, well, he was just a good moral teacher. You know, people of intellect will try and pass this one by without realizing how foolish it makes them sound. Jesus taught that he was the son of the living God and that he and his father were one. He taught that he was God. And so how can someone say that Jesus was just a good teacher but not God if the very thing he taught was that he was indeed God? If he wasn't God, that would make him a terrible teacher. <laughs> that would make him a teacher of lies. You know, famous Christian author C.S. Lewis said this in response to those that claim Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He says this, and I quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. Then Lewis adds, he says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. To say that Jesus was a good moral teacher simply is foolish. Okay? And, and it shows just how ignorant one can be of Jesus and his teachings. And so we see the questions of who Jesus is will get many different answers depending upon whom you ask. And to be honest with you, knowing what everybody else thinks or says about Jesus isn't as important as the next question that Jesus asked his disciples. Let's read the first part of verse 20. Jesus said to them, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Such a simple question. Eight very little words that form the question upon which your and my eternal status rests upon. Do you realize that the door to an eternity swings upon this very question? But who do you say that I am? And herein lies the point, the lesson that Jesus and I, that Jesus, I believe, was trying to teach his disciples and what I believe he wants to teach us or remind us of this morning. You see, it doesn't matter what Herod said or what the Jews said or what the religious leaders of the day said about who Jesus was. And it doesn't matter what the Mormons say or what the Jehovah's Witness say or what the Muslims say. It doesn't matter what the supposed intellectuals say or what the atheists say. It doesn't matter who your grandma and grandpa say Jesus is or who your mom and your dad says Jesus is, or who your wife or your husband says Jesus is. Here's why. And church family, this is very important, okay? Pay attention. Herod is not going to speak for you when the time comes for you to bow your knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Nor will the Jews nor will the religious leaders, nor Muhammad, nor Joseph Smith, nor your spouse, nor any other. You alone must give an account for the answer to this question. Nobody can answer this question for you. It is something all must answer on their own, individually. But who do you say that I am? Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni, church family. Who do you say Jesus is? It is crucially important that before you leave this place today that you have an answer to that question and not just any answer. You need to have the right answer, the correct answer. And Peter gives the correct answer and the rest of verse 20. Let's take a look at Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. 
Peter pipes up and he responds to Jesus, the Christ of God. In Matthew's account, we're told Peter's complete confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. The word Christ, okay, it is not the last name of Jesus. Okay, we say Jesus Christ. Okay, it's not his last name. <laughs> it's a title. Okay, in the Greek, it is the word Christos. And in the Hebrew, it speaks of the Messiah. Both Messiah and Christ are, are titles that translate as the anointed one. And so if you say Messiah and you say Christ, you're saying the same thing, just depending upon what language you're basing it off of, okay? You're saying the anointed one. It's one and the same. And by identifying Jesus as the Christ, Peter was saying that Jesus was the anointed one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He was anointed to be king of his people as well as the Savior of his people. And so acknowledging Jesus as the Christ was acknowledging Jesus as King or Lord as well as Savior. And oftentimes we read of the title of Christ being used together with those very distinctions of Lord and Savior. Paul wrote to Titus, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Peter exhorted his audience to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've said it before and I will say it again. I believe there are many in the world today that have an incomplete Jesus. They've made up an idol, a God of their own making and choosing, and they've called it Jesus, but it is not the Jesus that is spoken of in the Bible. You see, the Jesus in the Bible is both Lord and Savior. And there are a lot of people who have made up idols of just Jesus the Savior. They like the idea of having a Savior, a get-out-of-hell-free card, but they don't like the idea of having Jesus as Lord. They want a Jesus that is okay with their sin, that doesn't require repentance or responsibility. They want to live their life the way they want to, and so they make up a God that's okay with their life. They call it Jesus, but it isn't the Jesus of the Bible. He isn't Lord. You see, lordship requires discipline. Lordship requires sacrifice, surrender, and submission. These are things many people just don't like or want in their life. They're not willing to submit to Jesus as Lord and live their life according to his word. And so what they do is they make up a Jesus that's just Savior and not Lord of their life. And the problem with that church family is that Jesus that is only Savior isn't the Jesus of the Bible. And it certainly isn't a Jesus that can save you from anything. The correct answer to the question of Jesus' identity is that he is the Christ, the anointed Lord and Savior of all humanity. Anything other than that is an incomplete Jesus. It is an idol of our own making. Now that we've answered the question about who Jesus is, Let's turn our attention to the next important question Jesus seeks to answer, and that has to do with his mission as the Christ. There's a progression. Okay, yes, I'm the Christ, but what does that mean? Take a look at verses 21 
and 22. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. In verse 21, Jesus strictly warned the disciples. He commanded them not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This intrigues me. You would think his identity as the Christ would be something that Jesus wanted others to know. You would think that, you know, the more people who knew Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah, that the more people would follow him and and believe upon him, which is indeed a, a very good thing. But there is a problem. And the problem is the reason why Jesus didn't want the disciples telling people that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ. You see, the people didn't understand who the Christ was and what his mission was. Most Jews believed that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to come and and set up an earthly kingdom and that he would rule and reign as king over said kingdom. That he would come not only as a king, but also as a military power and he would come and usurp the the powers that be. Uh, He would be a deliverer and he would set the people free from the oppression of Rome. They had an incomplete view of who the Messiah was. They had a misunderstanding about what he was going to come and do. And that's why Jesus looks to set the record straight here in verse 22. Jesus takes this opportunity to explain to the disciples exactly what it is that he is facing, exactly what he, as the Christ, is headed towards. So the disciples would come to a proper understanding of who he was as the Christ and what his mission was. Jesus states in verse 22, a fourfold ministry that he, as the Son of Man and the Christ, must do. Note them with me. He said that the Christ, the Son of Man, must suffer many things. Before it is all said and done, Jesus will have endured all sorts of pain and suffering. He will be beaten and mocked, cursed at and spat upon, his body bruised and broken open. The mental anguish that he suffered is beyond what many of us could ever imagine or experience ourselves. As he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, pondering the pain and the suffering and the sacrifice that he was about to endure. All of this had to happen. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things. And this suffering was even foretold by the prophets. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 of the Christ, saying, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Isaiah also writes how he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You see, this wasn't something new. This wasn't a new revelation about the Christ. It had been foretold that it would be this way, but the people just failed to realize it. As they read those portions, they said, no, that can't be so, and they would dismiss it. The people failed to realize. They misunderstood 
Jesus said, number two, that the Son of Man must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. When Jesus speaks of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, he isn't just talking about the opposition that he had experienced uh, individually at the hand of the religious leaders. I believe this is a very specific mentioning of the individuals that make up the Jewish Sanhedrin. Okay, the Sanhedrin was the highest ruling court uh, of justice among the Jews. It was presided over by the high priest, and it was made up of elders, chief priests, and scribes. It was a council granted limited authority over certain religious, civil, and criminal matters uh, by Rome. It is amazing to consider that the very people waiting for the Christ, the religious leaders, will end up being the ones to reject the Christ. It will be the Sanhedrin that ultimately bring accusation against Jesus for committing blasphemy. And then they will send him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman official, for a formal trial and sentencing. Interestingly enough, this too was foretold by the prophets of the Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 3 states, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Psalm 22, 6, the psalmist describes the Christ as a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Again, the psalmist declares in Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So we see the the rejection of the Christ. It was also clearly foretold. But the people missed it. Jesus said the Christ, the Son of Man, must be killed. The third thing. Jesus was going to die. His death was required. He must die. He must be killed. There was no other option. As we know, Jesus would die an excruciating death upon a Roman cross. His body would be removed from the cross and placed within a tomb where he was buried. And again, I don't know if you see a pattern here, but I'm letting you know, and I'm sure you're not shocked when I tell you that this too was foretold. Daniel wrote of how after a certain amount of time, the Messiah, the Christ, shall be cut off. Speaking of him suffering the death penalty, Daniel 9.26 refers to that. The psalmist described the Christ in Psalm twenty-two, fifteen, stating, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. And again, we hear from Isaiah when he described the Christ, stating that he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. This requirement for the Christ to be killed It was not something new. But again, the people missed it. Lastly, fourthly, certainly not least of all, though, Jesus said the Son of Man must be raised the third day. This is, of course, speaking of the resurrection. This was required. Without the resurrection, the Christ would fail to complete his mission. All that he would go through would be for naught. All of the rejection, all of the... uh, torture, the abuse that he would feel 
the death would be for naught if not for the resurrection. The resurrection is paramount. If there is no resurrection, then we are all still lost in our sins and we have no hope of salvation. Paul said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You see, the resurrection of Christ, the Messiah, is required and it too was foretold. The psalmist declares, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Psalm 16, verse 10. Isaiah speaks of how the Christ's soul will be given as an offering for sin, and God will see this offering. He will prolong his days. Even the life of the Old Testament prophet Jonah is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord, the Christ. Now, why is all of this so important? Why is it important that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, why is it that He must suffer, that He must be rejected, that He must die, and He must rise again on the third day? Romans 4.25 describes how Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Jesus was delivered to the Sanhedrin, subsequently rejected by them. He was beaten, bruised, mocked, spat upon, and killed because of our offenses, because of our sins. You see, we all have a sin problem, and that sin, it separates us from the presence of a holy and righteous God. In and of ourselves, we have absolutely no means of correcting our sin problem. We can do nothing on our own to better our situation. No number of good deeds or religious acts will suffice in order for us to have any sort of chance of ever entering into the presence of God in heaven. Something had to happen. Something must have been done. And God's plan was to send His Son for us. He was rejected and suffered for us. He went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. His death upon the cross, a perfect sacrifice, was the only thing that could solve our sin problem. He was delivered up because of our offenses. And He was raised because of our justification. Justification, it speaks of a legal standing. It was necessary for Jesus to rise from the grave in order to provide us with our justification. Justification, it speaks of the act of God declaring men free from guilt. It declares men as being acceptable before the Lord. You see, we all will stand before the Lord one day and we will be held accountable for our sin. All roads do lead to God, okay? But only one leads to heaven. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 tell us that. But it is only those who have placed their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection that will be justified. When we come before the Lord, we won't have to speak for ourselves because Jesus will speak for us. 
He is our advocate with the Father, according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He represents us before the Father. Our sins, they made us guilty, but Jesus' death and resurrection, they provided a payment for the penalty of our sin. Jesus must suffer, must be rejected, must die, and must be raised on the third day because there was no other way to deal with our sin problem. There was no other way for us to be justified before the Father. This is what it meant to be the Christ. This was the mission of the Messiah, to lay down his life for ours and grant us a way into heaven. Well, the next thing Jesus looked to answer and bring clarity to was the question of what it meant to be a follower of Christ. You see, there's a progression here. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. Okay, well, let me explain to you what the Christ is. And he lays that out. And now he's going to basically say, this is what it means to be a Christ follower. But we're going to pause here, okay? And come finish off the rest of our text next week, Lord willing. Okay, part one, done. Part two next week. Please come back uh, and hear the rest of this message uh, for today. I think we have enough here to chew upon until next week. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ that came down to this earth. He suffered many things, was despised and rejected, and willingly laid down his life for ours, rising from the dead on the third day. All so that he could provide an answer to our sin problem and provide a way for us to enter into eternity with him and the Father in heaven. And my prayer, my hope, is that each and every one of us in this place, every single person that may be listening or streaming online, that we have all properly identified who Jesus is and that we have surrendered our life to him as Lord and Savior. There is no other option. And so please, if you have not made that decision, if you have not yielded your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, may it be today, the day of salvation. Get right with the Lord now. Properly identify who He is and surrender your life to Him completely. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that You sent Your Son to fulfill the mission of the Christ, the Messiah. He came and he had to do these things, Lord. He had to do them because of our sin. Lord, because we had no other way of ever coming into your presence and, and living with you in heaven, Lord. This had to be done. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his willingness to come and to surrender his life for us. And Lord, we thank you that we can share in the victory that he obtained through simple faith. Lord, your scriptures tell us that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that you are Lord, that you are Christ, that you raised from the dead, Lord, that we would be saved. Lord, I pray that we would have all made that decision, Lord that we have all properly identified who you are. Jesus, you are Lord, you are Savior, and there is no other 
and there is no substitute. May we live our lives according to that truth. May we live our lives yielded to you as Lord and Savior. Strengthen us by your Spirit to live that way for you. In and of ourselves, we fall so short. But by your Spirit, we can do all things. And so, Lord, give us the strength to follow after you. We look to next week's portion of Scripture. We look at what it means to be a follower of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would be stirring in our hearts this week the importance of what it means to be a follower of the Christ. Lead and guide us and strengthen us for all you have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.